Hail, and welcome to Owen's Alchemy. So by the time this go this uh, this episode airs, I should be on my way to uh, Flattoberfest, and uh, we will be having the excitement of Flattoberfest uh, coming up, and uh, that's going to be absolutely awesome. So everybody, come on down and join us. You cannot beat being inside that six feet that they tried to kick us all out of. The exchanging energy with uh, other people and and just uh, re, uh, building those bonds you you can't beat it you can't uh, you can't uh, at all compare it to what happens over the computer or what happens on the phone that being in each other's space it's it's it, it's intimate and it creates bonds so come down and come check us out and also this week we get to have the great pleasure of bringing on Jeffrey Drum, the uh, host of Land of Kim. And Jeffrey has uh, alternative theory on the Great Pyramids of Egypt, where we've all in the mainstream heard all about how uh, they think that it might be a power generator. Uh, There's some other things, and some of those are some nice theories. Uh, Jeffrey has brought it to where these are actually uh, chemical refineries and uh, working on alchemy. And given that it's the land of chem or chemit or alchemy, it seems like they probably were doing a little bit of that right then and there. So uh, a lot of this, especially the metal refinements, goes right in with the uh, presentation I'm going to have here at Flattoberfest. So this is just perfect timing. I actually have been yeah. real antsy talked to him since I first met him and saw his work and I uh, did you look at the slideshow already I, I haven't I haven't I wanted to oh, I good, wanted good. to be genuine with it I wanted to be genuine with it so I loaded it up awesome. about uh, an hour ago to make sure that way it didn't have any problems when we went to do it I loaded it up but oh, no yeah. I wanted to get the really react <laughs> to it so, um with everybody welcome jeffrey and let everybody know anywhere else they can go find you brother dude thank you so much for having me on so my name is jeff i'm the author of a little book called the land of chem uh an initiation into ancient chemistry through the degrees of the egyptian pyramids and as ben mentioned he he definitely nailed it in the intro there so even with the conventional name for egypt the land of k-h-e-m that's the etymology of our modern word for not only alchemy, but that our modern, more modern word for chemistry. So it's literally the birthplace of chemistry. And long story short, my theory is that the Egyptian pyramids were designed to produce chemicals on an industrial scale. So ancient alchemy, but on a very large scale within the Egyptian pyramids. And Ben, I appreciate you having me on. We've talked before. I think the first time we chatted was on uh, Brandon's, that group thing on Brandon's show, right? Weren't you on that? Uh, I- no, we we're, we we're on uh, rising from the ashes together. Oh yeah, yeah, that's out. right, that's right. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And uh, they asked me to come on, and they said, "What? Uh, like, have you talked to this guy that talks about the pyramids as chemical refineries?" I'm like, "No." Yeah. <laughs> yes, bring me in. <laughs> yeah. So I so I went, like you said. Um, you know, the conventional theories about the Egyptian pyramids focus just on the Great Pyramid. They don't mention any of the other structures in Egypt in terms of the function of these things. And that's one of my arguments against the, you know, conventional alternative theories about the pyramids. They focus just on that one. And so if it was an electricity producing generator, okay, so what are all the rest of them doing? So that was my biggest argument against just focusing on the single pyramid because it's, 
basically saying that all the other ones are basically non-functional, and this one was the only one that was doing this miraculous transformation. So I went to Egypt uh, my first time in 2017 because I was actually investigating the whole electricity production theories, and there's several out there that I was looking at, and I wanted to go see these things for in, you know, uh, in person for the first time for myself. So I booked this crazy trip in 2017. So as we started investigating these sites, I started to discover more and more that it was pointing me in the direction of ancient alchemy as opposed to electricity, because I didn't see anything compatible with the idea of the production of electricity. But I did see a lot of things that were compatible with the production of chemicals, which we knew that the dynastic Egyptians were doing. I don't think the dynastic Egyptians per se built the Egyptian pyramids. I think they came before the conventional historical definition of the dynastic period. I think they're several thousand years older than that. But nonetheless, we do know that the Egyptians were producing chemicals, and I'm proposing that they were doing it on an industrial scale. What, what I really loved about your story right out the gate was uh, when you um, took an interest in what these things possibly were, uh, you immediately wanted to go there and investigate, not just read somebody else's material, uh, which I, I feel like that's 95 nine percent of what goes on today is just a, a regurgitation of somebody else's yeah. opinion they didn't go there they didn't do the experiment they didn't you know um so because you went there and have seen things this is where you went and developed some of these uh opinions and uh theories that you have and like you were saying, I've seen pictures of the, the pyramid complex for the starts. It's not just the Great Pyramid. It's a pyramid complex. And isn't there another uh, complex of pyramids like just right next to it um, in a real short distance where if that was just power generation, it wouldn't make any sense where they'd have like six pyramids in a real small area? Yeah. So, I mean, on so there's probably I mean, I don't know the total count of pyramids. But there's probably hundreds of pyramids along the western bank of the Nile River, all from different eras of construction. But on the Giza Plateau itself, you have the Great Pyramid, the Central Py well, so let me call them by their uh, dynastic names. So you have the Khufu Pyramid, the Khafre Pyramid, and the Menkara Pyramid. So there's three major pyramids on the Giza Plateau. But then there's also three on the side of the Great Pyramid. There was a satellite pyramid behind the central pyramid, and then there's three more pyramids behind the Menkara pyramid. So there was a total of, I believe, what, three, nine, ten, ten pyramids on the Giza Plateau itself, not to mention all of the other structures. So I, I envision these as industrial manufacturing plants. So you have the manufacturing plant itself. And then you have smaller processing laboratories where they were converting industrial scale mm -hmm. chemicals into smaller batches to be processed and sent, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You're going to have your processing of the raw materials done in certain areas. You have store areas for certain things. You have, you know, processing of your final chemicals and storage of the final chemical and transportation areas. And so all this stuff was done in inland canals. They know that the Nile River was connected to a system of canals that went all over the eastern and western banks of the Nile River. So they were transporting stuff on water, including the movement of stones, which I've also I have a YouTube channel, The Land of Chem. also have a book, The Land of Chem. And I have 53 episodes describing exactly how all this stuff works. And I also have a video on how they built the Great Pyramid. And they were floating blocks of stone on wood. 
and they were floating them in the canals up to the river and to the construction site. So the whole process yeah, starts absolutely. in Saqqara. And, so, you know, all of these pyramids, a lot of people don't know that the Nile River came right up to the threshold of the temples during the flooding of the Nile River. So you would literally get right off of your boat into a little harbor and walk directly into the temple. And I have um, tour footage on my YouTube channel of us walking into that valley temple, the harbor temple, exactly like, you're, like you were coming out of the water from your boat. So this is a diagram of the pyramid complex at Saqqara. And so it's a, it's a whole network of different type of structures. And there in the center is the step pyramid complex, which I propose was producing or collecting rather methane gas. So again, in, in the verbiage of ancient alchemy, of course, the science of fermentation, digestion, putrefaction, all of that stuff kind of works in the same vein in the terms of allowing anaerobic bacteria and things to digest material, which produces gases, right? So the produ production mm -hmm. of different gases, which I propose is what was happening inside the step pyramid. You also have the pyramid of Winice, which is right next to that, that the back third of the reaction chamber is made from white calcite crystal. So the walls inside of that pyramid are made from big blocks of clear white calcite crystal. And then over there to the right, you also have the Serapium, which is that underground tunnel network with all of those large stone containers in there. So again, I have videos of all this stuff. I did exclusive tour footage during this research expedition to get like, actual footage from on the sites. But if you go to the next slide, I have a diagram of the inside of the Step Pyramid of Saqqara compared to, there you go, perfect, um, compared to a modern apparatus for um, the digestion of an agricultural slurry that contains cattle manure. So this is how we make methane in the rural areas today is by using a cattle manure slurry that contains water, cattle manure as your bacterial catalyst, and agricultural scrap material that's introduced into a digestion chamber. And the anaerobic bacteria will start to digest that raw material and it produces methane gas. And the methane gas is collected in a chamber above the digestion chamber. And that exact same configuration is what you see on the left there, which is the configuration of the step pyramid of Saqqara. You have an inlet shaft going down into the primary digestion chamber, and then there's an outlet shaft going out to the south. That's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. It makes a whole lot of sense. And, and anybody... Go ahead. Go ahead. I was hey, just hey, say, that, click to the next one. So I think I've got like 40 slides in here. So I have a ton of freaking material to cover. And if we just let me know if we have a time limit or whatever on this, and I'll try to get through these as fast as possible. But I'm sure you're familiar well, we with this. About, we usually run about two hours, brother. Okay, um, cool, cool. And that's, that's about where I got to cut too. Um, so perfect. As you, I'm sure you're familiar with obviously the stages of the alchemical process. So fermentation fits very, very nicely into the knowledge of ancient chemistry, which I'm proposing was the predominant science of this ancient civilization. It was all focused on chemistry and it was pr practiced by a select group of individuals that had been initiated into the science of chemistry, which is kind of what I propose in my book. Um, and people always ask, you know, why was it always such a protected science? Well, chemistry is dangerous and it's not for 
you know, just amateurs to practice. It's for people that are, you know, well initiated into the mysteries of chemistry. So that's kind of what I propose in the book, that there was an ancient society that constructed the Egyptian pyramids after the cataclysm that ended the last ice age. And they rebuilt their civilization using the Egyptian pyramids to produce chemicals, which was, of course, um, assisted in reestablishing the, situ uh, the civilization. That is absolutely fantastic. And, and I tell you what, on a personal level, I had no formal training myself and have only been uh, uh, self-taught. And I've blown my face off a few times. I walked around yeah. one summer looking like Skeletor the whole year. Um, <laughs> lips all cracked, eyebrows gone. It was horrible. Do you want the next slide? Yeah, yeah. You just keep, you just keep on rolling, man. Ah, perfect. So as we're talking about the stages of the alchemical process, so coagulation is another stage of the what I like to call, I guess, the medieval or the renaissance alchemical process. But it was also utilized by the ancient Egyptians, and I believe in the processing and treatment of wastewater and even river water, right? So within my theory, I propose that the Egyptian pyramids were utilizing water to facilitate chemical reactions, right? Either as an ingredient to make a slurry, you can also use it as a mechanism of operation in a pump, you know, to compress gases within the reaction chambers, which we'll get to later. So water was essential in the chemical production process, but you can't make chemicals with dirty water. And also, I believe that this was a semi-advanced civilization. They weren't drinking dirty river water either. So they would have had river water treatment plants. And what you see on the top left there is called ferric chloride, which is basically just iron that's been dissolved in hydrochloric acid to produce ferric chloride. And ferric chloride, I believe, was used by the ancient Egyptians, along with activated carbon there. So I propose that the central pyramid of Giza, I'm actually wearing the shirt, has the alchemical symbol for hydrochloric acid inside of the pyramid. I propose in my theory that the central pyramid was designed to produce hydrochloric acid and the Great Pyramid was designed to produce sulfuric acid. So they were using these acids for not only metallurgy, but also conversion and production of other chemicals, again, that were for a benefit to the civilization. And if you go to the next slide, um, so again, coagulation and flocculation, um, parts of that traditional alchemical process, but also applicable to the science of the ancient Egyptians. So this one is the red and bent pyramids of Dashur, the previous slide. And I propose that the red pyramid was producing ammonia. So... Ammonia is directly connected to the chemical sal ammoniac from the alchemical process. And that word literally means the salt of Amon. So Amon is the Egyptian deity Amon. So the etymology, right. the etymology of the modern word for ammonia is directly connected to ancient Egypt. And our first traces of sal ammoniac and ammonia being produced is from Egypt. So I'm proposing that the Red Pyramid was designed to produce ammonia on an industrial scale that was utilized for fertilizer. And I would even propose that. So I've, I've also suggested on my YouTube channel that some of the gods of ancient Egypt are actually esoteric symbols, right? Multi-layer uh, <laughs> chasing down animals. Yeah. <laughs> 
Just trying to keep you, trying to make sure there's no noise for you. Oh, it's, it's all good. It's all good, man. So like um, the deification of cattle, for example, in the ancient world, if you were using cattle manure for the production of sacred methane gas, it would make a lot of sense that the animal that produces that sacred ingredient became a deified and glorified animal. So that's one of the reasons that I believe that cattle were so important in the ancient world. Also, a huge prevalent symbol within the dynastic Egyptian religion was the apis bull. Same thing with the scarab. So the scarab is a dung rolling beetle, which pushes yep. dung and it collects dung. So if you were producing methane gas using cattle manure, what's the first stage of the reaction process? You got to collect the dung. So the scarab is also another esoteric symbol, a dual layer symbol. As with all great esoteric symbols, right? You have an interpretation that is a spiritual interpretation, and then you have a deeper interpretation that's intended for the initiates. Well, I would propose that the scarab within the dynastic Egyptian religion was a symbol for the rising and setting sun, but it was also a symbol that was connected to the science of ancient chemistry and the production of methane. So Amon also is the deity of fertilizing. He's the fertility deity. Oh, so it's fantastic. So, so Amon is also the fertilizer, right? The literal fertilizer, the chemical fertilizer, but he's also the deity of fertility, et cetera, et cetera. So there's reinterpretations of these ancient dynastic Egyptian symbols, which I believe just got lost in translation, you know, during the dynastic period. And they only had their superficial spiritual interpretation and the lost interpretation of chemistry you know, it was lost to the sands of time. And you can go on to the next one. Oh, yeah. So this is the first artifact that I found in Egypt that immediately started me in the direction of looking at chemistry as opposed to electricity. So this is something at a site called Abu Sir, and you have to get special permission access to go to Abu Sir. The public can't get access to the site. So I'm investigating the site. It's my first year in Egypt. And I stumble across this thing, which is obviously a collection bowl. There's a conduit, you know, a, a channel leading underneath that structure. So there's a temple right there that's connected to the pyramid. And as soon as I saw that thing, I knew that the inlet to that conduit was connected to the pyramid. I hadn't found it back in 2017, but I immediately knew that it was connected to the pyramid. And this was the first thing. So I was like, what the hell are they connect collecting? So you wouldn't go through all that trouble just for water because that thing is carved out of red quartzite. If it was just for water, you would use limestone or just natural bedrock or something of that nature. But they went through a lot of trouble to quarry that exotic red quartzite and haul it all the way hundreds of miles to that site. So also they've did proposed they, – go ahead. Did, is that like – a long insert this part where like the bottom it appears the bottom of the the conduit is the red quartzite how deep does that go into that because it looks like the top is a different stone where they're the top of the conduit like you yeah, know, the, whatever flow would be obviously touching the red granite does that go a long ways yeah, so that conduit leads all the way back. So it's underneath the structure. So you'll see there's the blip of the bowl right there, and then there's the bottom of the conduit, and then there's limestone on top of it, that top layer. Okay. And the whole, the whole conduit is buried underneath black basalt. 
So the floor of that temple is big, huge blocks of black basalt. And that red conduit goes all the way back through that temple, back toward the pyramid and click to the next slide. So I knew back in 2017 that I would eventually find the inlet. And that, that's what I finally found this year in 2022. I finally found that inlet shaft, which is if you turn around from that picture, you're literally looking at the base of the pyramid. So as I proposed in the book, the temples and the facilities located in proximity to the pyramids are processing and collection sites for the chemical that was being produced inside the structure. So they pump the chemical out of the structure. It travels through the temple and it's distributed and collected, processed, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the inlet to the collection bowl at the other end. And it's probably, you know, at least the length of a football field from that inlet over to where the collection bowl is on the other side. Wow. It's pretty awesome, right? So I'm going to, I'm going to have an, I'm going to have exclusive uh, video footage tour from this site and literally like the on-site discovery. As I stumble across this thing, I was like, Oh, Holy shit. There it is. And I, like I literally have that moment on camera when I saw it, I was like, Oh, you know, cause I'd never been around that corner. Cause we came up from behind the pyramid and I usually come up from the front. So I never went around that corner. So I just happened to be walking around the right corner of the pyramid to see exactly where it was. And as, as, wow. as soon as I saw it, I immediately knew what it was because I knew it was red quartzite and there's no other red quartzite in that area um, other than that little collection bowl. So this next site is a place called Abu Ghraib and it's not even a pyramid. It's what they call a solar temple that has this big obelisk coming out of the center of the structure. And what you don't see on that diagram are the mixing bowls that are located on that site. And the original housing, if you click to the next slide, so these are the mixing bowls that we found on the site. And I call them mixing bowls because they have three inlets into the bowl. One is curving into one direction, the other one's curving in another direction, and one goes in straight. So- Wow. So there were originally four of these mixing bowls on the northeastern, northwestern, southwestern, and southeastern corners. So on each corner of that temple, there were four of these mixing bowls. And there's another set of these bowls also on this site that are made of calcite crystal. They only have one hole bored into it. And there are remains of copper oxide in some of the crags of the calcite. So the calcite bowl itself was sheathed with copper. And there are multiple different interpretations of why that can be the case. Copper sounding bowls, copper interacting with water, copper alchemical vessels, all these sort of things. Um, so I kind of have a work in progress theory that I'll be dropping at some point eventually as to what the function of this site actually was. But it definitely, uh, it definitely isn't a burial. They don't even attempt to call it a burial. It's a solar temple. Wow. That is fascinating. And they're obviously vortexing these waters on the calcite bowls. Uh, does it, is it uh, angled uh, jet or is it the straight in type jet? Yeah. So it's just a straight board hole. And so we also have done some fluid dynamics experiments that are on my YouTube channel. And we're testing the fluid dynamics that I've proposed in my theory 
in terms of the function of the red pyramid. So we're also going to do some fluid dynamics experiments with this setup and test and see what happens when you put in just fluids, you know, different colored fluids with different configurations, you know, start one and then start the other one, start them all simultaneously see what happens. You start one in the middle and you know what I'm saying? Test the different configurations yep, yep. To, to see what happens in the mixing process. So that's one of my yeah, favorite sites. Yeah, yeah, go to the next one. That's one of my favorite sites, dude. It's absolutely mind-blowing. So, of course, I did a full day on the Giza Plateau. You can skip to the next one. That's just a picture of me from the Giza Plateau after we got done exploring. Fascinating. All right, so this is called the Osiris Shaft, and it doesn't look like much from the surface, but this is another special permission. Like, that gate is locked to the public, and you can't go in there unless you get special permission from the Ministry of Tourism and Antiquities. So we had to get special permission from the government, basically, to get them to open up that chamber. And if you click to the next one, I'll show you what's down in there. <laughs> so, so they dated this underground shaft system to a minimum of 1,000 years older than the pyramids on the surface. So even by the conventional dating, these things are like 4,000 BC, maybe 5,000 BC, like seven or 8,000 years old. So you go down these rickety-ass metal ladders down into this thing, and this is 120 feet underground. So the first ladder is about 20 feet. The next one is about 60 feet, and the final one is about 30 feet or so. And you go all the way down into the shaft system, and there's these massive stone containers down there. And right before I left for Egypt, I found a chemical analysis that discovered a metallic coating layer that covers the containers down in that second layer. And I haven't even dropped this on my channel yet, but I'll give you the exclusive. So I just, we'll, we'll talk about this later in the presentation too. So I just put out a video about the metal, metallurgical analysis of the Egyptian saw blades. And it turns out it's arsenical copper, copper with a small percentage of arsenic that completely changes the chemical composition of the, the metal itself, making it very, very hard and a very, very durable saw blade. They were also using ilmenite crystals, which is a titanium oxide. So it's basically titanium ore that contains titanium ore and iron ore. So they were using the titanium and iron as the abrasive in the sawing process, but they did have access to this titanium ore. So it turns out that the metal coating on the containers down in the Osiris shaft is titanium, iron, lead, arsenic, and zinc. Wow. And wow. they also they also tested, so they took a Geiger counter down inside the shaft system, and they tested the ambient radiation in the chamber compared to inside of the containers. And inside of the containers, there was significantly elevated radiation. So I was down inside there more than like a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> How's your pee looking at night? Oh, no. <laughs> like, we're going to come back like growing an extra finger somewhere or whatever. But, um, and then you go down into that final level, and it's a crystal clear blue lagoon. Underwater, like there's this beautiful water down there, and it's supposed to be an island. It had four pillars down there and this under, underwater container. So very, very fascinating and perplexing, perplexing ancient site. I just wanted to mention that because I have another the chemical analysis video coming up, and it's it's a part wow. of how these things, 
it's a part of how these things operated. And so we'll so, get so, to it in just yeah, go ahead. Was the dynastic age also during the copper age of man then? Yeah, so the conventional story is that the, everything in the dynastic Egyptian civilization was done with copper tools, but they don't give any credit to the knowledge of alchemy and chemistry of this civilization where it wasn't just pure copper. Pure copper is, is shit for cutting stuff. But if you make yeah. an alloy of arsenical copper, it completely changes the property of the blade, making it very, very hard, basically as good as iron. It, it was known and as arsenical bronze. And probably a lot easier to work without the and a lot easier to work without the gate because before you make it into the alloy, this would all be pretty easy to deal with. Like uh, that would that'd be a lot easier than trying to deal with with iron. Um, Correct. And and to leave out the mix that titanium's in the mix. Titanium's a, a, a horse of a different color entirely. Yeah. So. Uh, the coating compound is very, very unusual because they were able to create some sort of slurry that contains these metallic microparticles. So again, I go back to processing these chemicals with acids. They had to have acids to be able to break down these minerals and extract these microparticles to be able to create these sealing compounds. So I have some more. Go ahead and go to the next one. I got do there. I put so much in this presentation. <laughs> So this is from well, my most recent. So you, get, you take it, brother. <laughs> um, so this is from my most recent episode about that metallurgical analysis, and these images are et scanning electron microscopy images of microscopic metal fragments that were left from the saw blade in the cutting process. And the picture in the <laughs> middle, the picture in the middle is from Abu Sir, and you can see the curved part of that saw cut at the end, which indicates the thickness of the saw blade. So it's just a really cool picture where you can see the saw blade and the thickness of the saw blade cutting through that stone. That's just fantastic. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And then, so yeah, and then it, it turns yeah, out, see go it ahead, go ahead. That way you can almost see like from this angle, look at the little kind of lines in it. Like, like you kind of get with wood a lot of times when you're doing it like that too. When you're oh, yeah, so that. So that stone like that. has striations all over it. And you can literally see the groove pattern of the saw as it went down. I, I have tons of other pictures of that, but yeah, it's awesome. So it, yeah, it turns out again, the saw blade was made of arsenical copper. They found tons of arsenical copper fragments. Let me just skip to the next one. And the next one, they found little tit iron, iron and titanium microparticles in these saw cuts, which again is an indication that they were using that ilmenite crystal as the abrasive for the cutting process. You can skip to the next one. So they also found particles that appear to have been fused. So this is one that has arsenic, tin, iron, copper, and titanium, which most likely is from the heat of the saw blade fusing with some of these microparticles from the abrasive. However, I'm certainly not opposed to the idea that they had created a, a more sophisticated alloy that may have even been just the tip of the blade. You know how today you'll make a blade and it'll have a diamond tip or whatever the, the edge of the blade is a different type of material. So I'm not opposed to the idea that they had the blade tipped in something that was a different type of metal. Isn't that cool? 
Dude, I thought it was it was so awesome to see these little tiny microscopic particles. And this is another one that was very unusual and not really compatible with the saw blade or the abrasive compound, which is a, a single particle that contains tungsten, bismuth, and molybdenum. So tungsten and molybdenum are very good metals in terms of high, high heat properties, like their high melting point. But bismuth is the exact opposite, where bismuth has an incredibly low melting point. So I'm not 100% sure what the, where that particle came from, but I also did some investigation into quartz and gold mines, and all three of these um, metallic elements, tungsten, bismuth, and molybdenum, are found in natural minimal minerals within gold mines and quartz mines. And I 100% believe that this civilization was also a lot about gold processing, you know, the production of incredibly pure gold. And so you find in like South America, especially 99.99% pure gold. Well, you can't get that from smelting process. Like if you're smelting gold, you're never going to get it chemically pure. So how did they get that purity of gold? Well, you had to process it with chemicals. You have to isolate the gold particles itself using, um, aqua regia, making chlororic acid and then extracting the gold particles and then melting them down. And that's what I believe that they were doing. So clearly they had access to not only hydrochloric acid, but also nitric acid. So again, they had to be with the amount of gold and even the amount of metals that this civilization was producing. So if you skip to the next one, um, so even with um, Egyptian blue, which is just a synthetic pigment, it's just a blue paint. It's the first synthetic pigment that was ever created on the planet. And everything in Egypt is painted with this blue paint. So even for them to make enough paint to be able to paint all this shit, they had to be making that pigment on a semi-industrial scale to be able to supply all the paint makers. So again, you don't ever hear the story of industrial scale alchemy or chemistry in Egypt, but it is literally the birthplace of that science. So here's where it gets interesting. So that machine produces an electromagnetic energy field. And we tested the properties of the different stones utilized in the construction of the pyramids in proximity to the electromagnetic energy field produced by that machine. So hypothetically speaking, just replace that machine with the electromagnetic field of the Earth, right? So that we know that Earth has ley lines and an electromagnetic grid field that surrounds the planet. And there's interactions and um, crossings of these electromagnetic lines, vortexes or, you know, ley line convergences or whatever you want to call them all across the planet. And the sacred sites are built on these convergences of electromagnetic energy. So just replace yeah. that machine with the earth. So we tested, you can kind of skip through the next couple of slides. So we tested the limestone that was utilized. We also tested samples of red granite. We tested samples of black basalt, and we tested samples of white calcite crystal. And you put them on top of this machine, and when you turn the machine on, you can touch it and nothing happens. So this is a recreation of the Jed Pillar, and we did a Jed Pillar mock-up just to see what happens with the different types of stone. And you can touch the machine, nothing happens. You can put a copper wire on the machine, nothing happens. But as soon as you put the stone on top of the machine, limestone allows an electric discharge to come out of the stone and into the copper wire. 
But if no stone is there, nothing happens to that copper wire. Uh -huh. Same thing with the black basalt. The black basalt allows the... So basically what's happening is the stone is absorbing the magnetic component of the electromagnetic energy field, and it's allowing a discharge of the electric component into the copper wire. However, when you pass that electromagnetic current through the red granite and through the white calcite, both of those minerals have crystalline quartz or crystalline components, calcite crystal or the quartz crystal within red granite. And that crystalline material absorbs that electromagnetic energy field and nothing happens. So you can put your finger up to the red granite and there's no discharge. You could put your copper wire up to the red granite and nothing happens. And it was a little bit counterintuitive because I expected it to be the opposite because of all the metals and the quartz and the red granite. I expected it to be more of a conductor of that electromagnetic energy, but it's the exact opposite. It absorbs that electromagnetic energy and the stones. You can put your hand near a red granite stone on that machine and you can just feel the energy vibrating out of that stone. So I believe that this was also integrated into the chemical reaction process inside of the structures because these chambers are designed with limestone. The red granite has chambers, parts of the chambers that are built from red granite. There's also black basalt, for example, has exceptional heat retention properties that once you get that stone hot, it will remain hot. So there's some very interesting properties of these stones. And this geology has been integrated in different ways all across these sites. So we well, also did during my mind is just screaming right now. Like there's so many different options, ways you could take that. I mean, just the basic uh, uh, heater for distillation processes and things and getting reactions to happen and yep. all the way up to electrolysis. Correct. Yep. So again, very, very interesting stuff that we've just kind of stumbled across. And during this 2022 trip, I, I had the idea that I wanted to test the shape of the pyramid. So I had him carve some limestone pyramids and some red granite pyramids, like into the shape of the pyramid. And we tested to see what happened. And I'll have that, that video is coming out on my YouTube channel, probably here in the next month or so. Ooh. Oh, it's awesome, That's dude. Cool. It was very, very interesting. And again, the results were somewhat counterintuitive. So this next one, this is from inside the red pyramid of Dashur. And you can see all of that profuse chemical staining inside of the chambers. And it also reeks of ammonia inside of this structure. And the conventional explanation is that the staining inside the chambers and the smell of ammonia is from bats, bat urine, bat guano, etc. Well, I knew the first time that I went inside this structure that that was complete nonsense. There are no bats inside the structure. That staining was not produced by bats. It's not a, there, there's a whole bunch of reasons why it's not bats. Well, fast forward five years. And I stumbled across another chemical and well, I didn't stumble across it. I happened to know the group that had taken these samples and they're a group called the Acida Project. And I've been following the Acida Project for probably like close to 10 years now, if not longer than that. So anyway, if you go to the next one, well, we can kind of skip through these next slides and I'll tell you. So again, they did a scanning. They took samples of that material. They did a scanning electron microscopy discovery. Skip to the next one. 
And so this is what they started to find are these little crystalline particles. And then if you just go through the next couple, so the first couple of samples that they looked at, so again, this is just the formula for, for um, bat urine and bat guano, right? It's very, very organic type compound with carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, right? Ammonia is NH3. And if this was from bats, you'd expect to see a bunch of nitrogenous compounds, right? Solid compounds that contain nitrogen oh, or growing. More good right? for growing. Yeah, yeah. So again, that you would expect to see that in the samples. So this is the first sample. There's nothing really unusual about this first sample. So you see the potassium is somewhat elevated in the sample, potassium and oxygen. Okay, so there's nothing unusual there. Skip to the next one. This next one, you do have some carbon, you do have some oxygen, you got some salts, silicon, potassium, um, phosphorus, sulfur, chlorine, calcium, nothing really unusual about this one. Go to the next one. Same thing here. Again, same kind of element profile. Let's go to the next one. You see a little bit of zinc and a little bit of barium in this one. Okay, so this next one, we've got 50% of copper in this sample. And this is where it begins to get a little bit unusual. So you wouldn't expect to see in something that was organic, 50% of copper in the weight of the sample. Let's go to the next one. Okay, so this one is zinc. You got almost 90% zinc from this portion of the sample. Okay, so now we're moving further and further away from anything that is an organic compound, and we still haven't seen any nitrogen in there. So on this next one, we've got 60% iron. We've got all those same kind of background elements, but now we've got more of that iron material. So now we're getting further and further away from something that's organic. Let's go to the next one. All right, so here's where it gets interesting. Antimony. 50% of that sample is antimony. And I'm sure you're very familiar with antimony as it was the first metal that was really extracted and studied by the ancient alchemists in terms of retrieving pure metal. They were studying antimony. And antimony was also used by the Egyptians for a number of different products. They used it for cosmetics. They used it for um, pharmaceuticals. It was used in a substance called coal, which was an eyeliner. So they were very, very aware of antimony. And the concentration of antimony in this sample is way, way higher than it should be if it was naturally occurring in the stone. So there's lots of these background elements that could be naturally occurring in the stone. And look what you see down at the bottom there. You know what TH is? Thorium. Thorium. Fucking 40% of that sample, almost, 36.78% is thorium. So, again, this is basically just conclusive very evidence. It's oh, very, very so it's, odd. It's, it's conclusive evidence that it is not organically produced by bats. I knew that from the beginning, and that's everybody, oh, it's the bats. Nothing to see here. It's all from the bats. Shut the fuck up. I knew that originally, and it was complete nonsense. So let's go to the next one. It gets more interesting, believe it or not. So this is the full microelement breakdown from that sample. So look at all those background elements. You got cesium, praeodymium, neemium, samarium, europium, gadolinium, terbium, dysprosium, holmium, erbium, uh, ytterbium, lucium, hafnium, lead, thorium, uranium, beryllium, scandium, vanadium, et cetera, et cetera. So there's everything in this sample in terms of rare, exotic, 
radioactive elements or at least traces of it. So I did some research and it turns out that the limestone from inside of these chambers yeah, um, is a rare form of limestone that's not calcium carbonate, it's strontium carbonate. And strontium has an affinity for replacing calcium in the calcium carbonate lattice. I've mm. also found, so that's where the strontium comes from. And so these stains are extrusions of strontium that are leaking out of the stone. So I believe that that is a result of the fluctuations of high heat and temperature and pressure inside of that chamber. So there was high heat inside of that chamber, which to get extrusions out of stone, you're going to have to heat that stone. There also has to be fluctuations in pressure, like you're squeezing a sponge. A sponge isn't going to leak the material out unless you squeeze it. Right, right. Absolutely agree. So there and were yeah, fluctuations no. of temperature and pressure inside of that reaction vessel which resulted in the extrusions of strontium. So that's what you see down there at the bottom, the SR. The majority of that staining is strontium, which is unusual enough because this is a, an incredibly rare type of limestone that also contains, so all of those background elements, everything basically less than one or less than five, that could hypothetically be naturally occurring. In very special types of undersea deposits of limestone, you can find all of these trace background elements but then you get to the layer that has nickel copper zinc antimony um, and several other metals in there they're like antimony in the previous slides the thorium right those are too high of a concentration to be naturally occurring and it's also not the part of the strontium so there's three different things that you're looking at in the chemical analysis you're looking at background trace elements in the stone you're looking at the strontium, which is strontium carbonate instead of calcium carbonate. But then you also have a layer of metallic sealer, similar to the metallic sealer that was found in the Osiris shaft. So it's taken me months and months to decipher this chemical analysis to figure out which con concentrations could hypothetically be naturally occurring. But so the mystery is, why did they select this specific type of stone? Because this type of stone is only used in the Red Pyramid. It's not used anywhere else in Egypt. So they also do... How does yeah. that stone deal with radiation? How, how does that stone... Is it, uh, does it absorb it? Does it... Uh, yeah, so I don't, I don't know if they did any radiation testing inside of the Red Pyramid. But I would imagine there is background radiation inside of that structure. And so the, the samples that we were thorium used for typically, right? Yeah, thorium used in um, nuclear reactors. Yeah, it's it's to upgrade the uranium because uh, it's what makes your uranium gonna uh, up you know upgrades the power of your uranium because thorium is really a weird one, and yeah. it, it allows you to transfer a neutrons so you can stack more ions onto things. So you're like juicing it up. So what's unusual, well, the whole thing is very unusual. But in the micro element composition, the thorium is 0.2 grams per ton. So it's a very, very small amount. But in that 
single scanning electron microscopy image. So you can zoom in with this little microscope and do a chemical analysis of different spots. There was almost 40% of thorium in that one sample. So there's some varied concentrations of thorium, which again, it goes back to the process of how do they know where to find the stone that contains all of this stuff? So even the process of the geological survey to know where all this stuff is, is a very sophisticated science that involves deep knowledge of geology and also of chemistry. Because to be able to understand the geology, you have to understand the chemistry of the geology. Yeah. So go to the ne go to the next one. Okay. okay. All right. This, this is just promo for shirts. Land of Cam merch. Go to the next one. I didn't think that was in there this early. And promo for the book, Land of Chem, an initiation in ancient chemistry. Go to my website. It's thelandofchem.com. Also, oh, was that? I think that's the end of the presentation, maybe. Oh, so that was it. I, I didn't think that I was going to be able to get through all of that, dude. And I, I didn't mean to, like, steamroll the conversation. I just wanted to make sure I got through all the slides because I put this one together specifically for you because it was very much tailored to the compatibility of my work with your work on ancient alchemy. I mean, it, it runs in the same vein. It is the same yeah. river. And again, I'm, I'm just proposing that Egypt was the birthplace of this science. And then it went underground, mostly because of the establishment of Catholicism and their persecution of all sorts of ancient knowledge. So you had to go underground with it. So the science of alchemy became this esoteric spiritual pursuit, right? Mm -hmm. They have this, this allegory of spiritual ascension and transformation of the soul and all that kind of good stuff. Okay, so that's the spiritual interpretation, the esoteric interpretation that's intended for the public. But there's also legitimate chemistry embedded in that. So those symbols are all basically alchemical formula. And to the initiated practitioner, you can read those manuscripts and read those images and derive chemical formulas and chemical practices from those texts. And I think it's an absolutely fascinating to investigate. So that's where I, dude, I, this is where I cut my teeth was starting with learning about ancient alchemy, esoteric societies, the Egyptian pyramids, you know, all of the kind of alternative theories about the universe and how the earth works. So I'm more of a, I don't know if you're familiar with the electric universe theory and the Thunderbolts project. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's kind of where that's what resonates with me as being the truth of how the universe works because the earth is electromagnetic energy receiver. We're receiving electromagnetic energy rate waves from the sun and I do believe that the civilization that built this so it's also again it ties into alchemy where you're utilizing the planets and the different times mm -hmm. of the year and the different cycles of the planetary cycles and universal cycles to capitalize on the efficacy of your chemical reaction process. And I believe mm -hmm. that's the exact same with the Egyptian pyramids. So they built the pyramids of Giza, for example, to mi mimic the, um, the belt stars of Orion. So again, that's, that's that alchemical integration of astrology and chemistry, but it's just on yeah. a much larger scale. Yeah, well, and it, it really integrates uh, uh, an alchemist today is hard pressed to do everything right. 
And it's almost like setting off little timers because when you set your uh, facility, if you looked at it as like a facility, when you set your facility off to have alarms that go off basically because a star came into alignment perfectly and you start your reaction according to that, um, who, honestly, the people in the facility can be monkey see, monkey do. Like they don't even have to have the higher understanding that the guy who de- who uh, designed and built the building did. He needed right. to understand that. But the guy inside the building, hey man, when that when that when that right there lights up, do this. It's dark. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, you know. Um, no, that's absolutely fantastic, and that's perfect that your uh, promo came up. Uh, go ahead and throw out anything else that you want to go out there. And then we switch over. Uh, we take a little uh, 15 minute old man pee break and uh, we switch over to the Rockfin side, which is completely unset. Well, mostly uncensored. Owen Benjamin showed us it's not completely, but mostly uncensored. And uh, they let us talk like adults and uh, really throw out uh, the more, uh, the ideas that get you shut down on YouTube so we can free yeah. up with our chat and go through some of the ideas of this. That's absolutely fantastic. Um, but yeah, throw out any information you want again there, brother. Yeah. So again, I'm the land of chem, like C H E M as in a play on words for the land of chemistry. My YouTube channel is the land of chem C H E M. My website is the land of You can also follow me on Instagram at the land of chem. That's it for me, man. Everything is at the land of chem. I lucked out on the domain name when I started to do this. Yeah, yeah. I I, I got uh, I'm Heathen Wizards and Odin's Alchemy, and yeah, nobody used those either. So yeah, those no, are those are ab- great names. Thank you, thank you. No, this has absolutely been fantastic. Uh, thank you, everybody on the YouTube side. Come on over and join us on the Rockfin side, where it's uh, absolutely free to watch and listen to the whole show. Uh, If you want to make comments, you just sign up for an account, just like on YouTube. Uh, If you want to pay the $9.99 to get into the premium accounts, uh, you get access to all the premium accounts on Rockfin. And I mean, they got, they picked up Eddie Bravo and they got Whitney Webb over there. She does some killer uh, investigations, uh, all kinds of different things. So come on over and join us and uh, pick up where, uh, Jeffrey and I start having a back and forth about some of these ideas and really get into it. Love you guys. And Appreciate see you. Thank you so much. <laughs>